We're back with episode two. Today, we're going to go over everything that happened at Barcelona over the last few weeks. Back in the Premier League, we'll delve into one of football's new age rivalries between Chelsea and Liverpool in anticipation of what will be the first big clash of the season this Saturday. Wait, 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 hold on. Didn't you guys play Arsenal last weekend? We did. It was a big clash for them, sure. Okay, fair enough. We'll also discuss all of the action from the past two game weeks. We're your hosts, Rachel and Mihir. All this and more coming your way on The Pitch Life. So while I was looking at some kits online, I noticed Harry Kane is the face of the Spurs jersey campaign. Did you see that? I did. I saw that. I found it really interesting because I don't know if that was planned or not. I don't know what's happening over there, but it looks like he's going to be wearing that kit for the rest of his life. Speaking of wearing one kit for the rest of your life, the Messias finally left the building. So after 16 years, 35 trophies, six Ballon d'Ors and 672 goals, we've got to this unthinkable stage where Messi, arguably the greatest of all time, is no longer going to be playing at the new Camp. Any first thoughts? Shocked, for sure, because I didn't really expect it to happen. A lot of the noises coming out of Barcelona seemed to suggest that he was going to sign a new contract. Laporta ran his presidential campaign on the fact that Messi would sign a new contract, and it really looked like it, he would. But all of a sudden, we got this news that, no, it's not going to happen. It's done. Messi will no longer be a Barcelona player, and I could not believe it. To know just how muddled up this club is, Messi offered to reduce his wages by 50% and they still couldn't balance the books. And obviously, at the face of it all, there was that whole him crying at the press conference and I truly believe that was genuine. He really did not want to leave Barcelona. I know you found it really interesting, at least the financial aspect of it. I don't think I paid much attention to it. I mean, I think it's been fairly well known that Barcelona are not managed well, at least financially. I think all of their transfer dealings point to that. They they gave us 148, 150 million pounds for Coutinho. It's funny to think that we contributed to their downfall. We even made matters worse for them in the Champions League as a Liverpool supporter. I'm kind of proud of that, but I also feel bad that it's resulted in someone so iconic, someone so great like Messi leaving Barcelona. Because honestly, even though I'm not a Barcelona supporter, I would have still liked to see Messi finish his career at Barcelona. So you've looked into this. What the hell happened there? Yeah, I have looked into this a little bit. Barcelona are traditionally not known to be a club that tends to give attention to the detail, but I I feel the reason for this incredibly disturbing mess that has transpired is it all started last year where Messi wanted to leave what he thought wasn't a viable project. But Barcelona had a buyout clause, which was at an atrocious $650 million or something. The caveat, I believe, though, was that when he got into the last year of that contract he could leave when a club came for him as a free agent. So that was the agreement, at least. Now, he had a clause in there, so his team decided to activate that clause a year ago when he wasn't happy and he knew Barcelona were going nowhere. After a public spat last summer, some good old confusion, as always, and a few threats to take legal action, Messi decided 
eventually, you know what, I'll honor my deal. I'll spend the the final year I've got without leaving. Now, Barca, on the other hand, made two mistakes during so, that So, hold on. I've, I've got a question for you. Do you think that that was really Messi just saying, fine, I don't want to deal with this. Let me just stay at Barcelona. Or do you think that was a way of putting pressure on the Barcelona board to change something? We saw what happened after he announced his intention to leave last season. We saw Bartomeu and whoever else was there on the board. A few of them even got arrested on charges of corruption and whatnot. What do you think? I think it was a bit of both, really. I think there was initial discontent and he did want to leave because Barcelona and corruption go hand in hand. So even though he's been at the club for God knows how long and cemented his status as a legend, I don't think any player, however big, however famous, should have to put up with this stuff. So I think there was genuine discontent and he wanted to leave. He's one of the rare phenomenons in football where all of that fame and all of that legendary status has not changed him. He's a very private guy. He's someone who doesn't like discussing his contract or his personal affairs with Barcelona. So I think eventually he sort of doubled down and just said, you know what, I'll take one for the team. I'll take one for both teams, in fact, and stay another year. And in essence, it sort of just made his aura even bigger, to be honest. Personally, for him, it brand Messi just went higher. Barcelona, though, made two very, very massive mistakes that summer. One is if they did want to sell him eventually, that was the best transfer window to do it in. They would have got a massive sum regardless of what his buyout clause was. Even half of that, a quarter of that clause would have got them a good 200 million. And two, they threatened him with legal action if he wanted to leave for free. That's not something you do with your talisman. He's not even a talisman. He's way more than that. So I don't think that's something you do. And that has then transferred over to this year when he's finally left. All of that burden and baggage has just come and exploded in Barcelona's face. You mentioned that if Barcelona really wanted to cash in on Messi, they should have done so last summer. They should have sold him then. And yeah, they would have gotten a huge amount for that. But do you really think that would have gone down well with the supporters? Do you really think that Bartomeu or whoever was calling these shots would have come out looking good saying we want to sell Messi and get whatever money we can? Because let's face it, you ask any Barcelona supporter, they wouldn't want to see Messi sold no matter how much it costs. I don't think there is a price in their mind that they feel is worth paying for Messi. And in all honesty, they shouldn't because he has been not just the greatest player for Barcelona, but the greatest player in the football world. There's no way that could have gone well for Bartomeu. I know that this time when he eventually did leave, Laporta came out and said, look, we can't do anything. We had a contract. We wanted him to sign it. He wanted to sign it. La Liga rejected it. La Liga has this whole wage cap thing. And Laporta could come out and deflect blame and put it on La Liga, put pressure on La Liga. Bartomeu, I feel, would not have been able to do that last season. This season, it's different. So let's look at La Liga's wage cap because that's what Laporta feels was the reason that they couldn't keep Messi on. You're absolutely right. We've come to a point where Bartomeu is gone, of course, and Laporta has taken over. So there's that side of the senior level management that has changed at the club. Now, on the side, there's obviously, as you mentioned, the La Liga matter. So enter La Liga. The league puts on this bold stance of reducing an already dwindling wage cap. So basically what they said is, we will audit every La Liga club 
will review their financial situation and then set a cap to ensure that each club sticks to a wage bill and operates more sustainably. That's basically all it was. Now, little did they know that our friends at Barcelona not only don't know how to count, but also have no fucking regard for the rules whatsoever. Barca's wage bill at one point, I think this was an estimate somewhere online, was about 110% of their revenue, which if you think about it is fucking staggering because Barcelona as a club, they're one of the richest teams in the world. That's one thing. But you have a player who generates the amount of revenue like Messi does of almost like a medium-sized country's GDP. And they still exceeded that as their wage caps. You can just imagine the amount of mismanagement there. And obviously, Messi's wages are no mean feat. They're about 100 million euros a season. So it's like a vicious circle going on and on and on from season to season. Now, the problem comes where La Liga set this wage cap. It used to be about 600 million euros about two years ago. And now they brought it down to 150 million from 600 to 150 in just two seasons. That's a quarter of what the wage cap used to be two years ago. But imagine for Barcelona, when you have jokers like Coutinho, Dembele, and Griezmann on your contracts, who earn roughly, what, 600, 700,000 euros a week, just inflating the market enormously. Reducing your wage cap is just ridiculously difficult, if not impossible to do. I can almost imagine this funny situation where there's this dude in a dingy basement somewhere under the new camp, just manually scrolling through thousands of rows of Excel, creating pivot tables and desperately trying to hide rows. And even on the outside, without knowing any of the details, it looks that frivolous. And that's how they're mismanaging this whole situation. It just looks as primitive and comedic as it really is. So the simple task for Barcelona was sell players, request players to take wage cuts, beg, borrow, steal, possibly, do whatever they can and just reduce that wage bill. It's just as simple as that. But then if you look at this possibility of bankruptcy looming and Barca having been told to reduce their wage bill, in typical Barcelona fashion, they go out and they buy four more players. Not that they had enough problems. They buy Aguero and Garcia from Man City. They buy Memphis Depay and some other dude from some Brazilian club and then proudly claim three out of those four players are free agents. I was like, wow, what a coup, right? They did get those players for free, but they couldn't really do anything about it because they couldn't register those players. I I don't even know how that makes sense. I get that they wanted to bring in players and put the pressure on whoever was doing all the transfer dealings to get players out of the club. Even if you did get all of these free agents, they're not going to play for your club for free. Unless they take a 100% wage cut, this is not a viable solution. Overall, I feel that last season, Bartomeu pissed off Messi. No signings, not being competitive, never sold him a vision, so he wanted to leave. Took him to court even and plunged the club into massive debt. Then Laporta this season has engaged in a sort of a Mexican standoff with the La Liga over the increased wage cap. He thinks that La Liga would have caved and said, oh, you know what? We don't want Messi to leave. He's a massive benefit to our league. Let's take that wage cap to where it was at 600 million and solve all of Laporta's and Barcelona's problems. But La Liga didn't do that. They were poker-faced. They stood their ground. They called Barcelona's bluff and they gave them a right bollocking. 
Barca, on the other hand, even blamed La Liga for not being flexible. How can a league be flexible when they've set out a rule for all 20 clubs? You cannot break that rule for just one club, no matter who they have on their roster. I don't know why La Liga would do that, because you're effectively hamstringing the two best teams that you have, Madrid and Barcelona, who have a global presence, who bring a lot of money in through the Champions League and whatnot. So I I don't know why La Liga would do that. I read that there were reports of this billion pound deal being signed with some private equity firm, CVC Ventures or CVC Capital or something like that. It, It seemed for a moment that that deal would bring in more financial stability and provide more financial resources to all of these clubs, including Barcelona, which might have made signing Messi and the other four free agents much easier. So how did that go downhill? One of the reasons I feel La Liga might have stood their ground and said, no way, we are not changing the wage bill back up again, is because they have accepted a 10% stake from a private equity firm called CVC in the US, I believe, for $2.7 billion or 3.2, you know, depending on the news outlet you you read. That is a massive amount of cash infusion up front for the league. And this must have had some part to play in La Liga saying, no way, Barcelona, you deal with your situation. We have cash already, so we're not going to do anything to help you. Now, This infusion of cash is great for some mid-table and low-league clubs because, as you said, it gives them stability, it gives them sustainability over many, many years and just provides that financial relief. But it's not so good for big hitters like Barca and Real Madrid. With this deal going ahead, La Liga gives a large part of their revenues back to the firm that was funding them, hence surrendering control. Now, to your point, Laporta even mentioned that Barcelona would have been happy to sign this deal and they would have been able to keep Messi, but then they would have lost control. I don't know the specifics of the deal, but just maybe this deal was so monstrous and so devilish that neither president at Real Madrid or Barcelona wanted to sign it. So how bad was this deal that La Liga just accepted? Now that's definitely something that'll come out in the coming months, but Laporta did definitively say that they would have signed the deal if not for the nature of it and that would have meant it would have been so much easier to keep Messi. I think they were just weighed down too much and just didn't focus on actually getting the Messi deal over the line. And then looking at this season, a Messi-less Barcelona, they've, they seem to have started off the season pretty well with a win but I don't know. They seem to be emotionally, mentally, and financially scarred by the whole situation. And I think they will be for many, many decades to come. But anyway, let's uh, pick the mood up a bit. One person's loss, I guess. And the Farmers League in France now have a new GOAT. (laughs) Honestly, there were only two clubs that realistically could have signed Messi. And we know which clubs those are. Manchester City and PSG both funded by oil money, can spend money on literally anything. We know that Manchester City did because they got Grealish for $100 million. Even on a free transfer, I can't really think of any other clubs that would have been in the picture to sign him, given his astronomical wages. Maybe United, maybe Chelsea, and I don't know, maybe there were reports that linked them with Messi as well, but I don't think I'd have 
ever taken that seriously, not not even for a second. It, I think it was more obvious than ever that it was going to be City or PSG. PSG came calling. Messi knew what he wanted. He gets to link up with Neymar again, which is funny because he wanted Neymar to join him at Barcelona, and that really didn't work out. And now we get to see Neymar, Messi, Mbappe, and Di Maria playing in the same team. And that's an enormous amount of talent. That's a ridiculous amount of firepower. And PSG probably still won't win the Champions League. To me, they're like the U.S. men's basketball dream team of the 1992 Olympics because you had Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, all of those superstars on one team. And you have a similar sort of makeup with Messi, Neymar, Mbappe. And you've also got really, really good players in midfield and at the back. So... I guess it remains to be seen how well PSG will actually do this season. Can they win the Champions League? Finally win the Champions League. They'll probably end up winning the league again. Recapture that from Lille. But it remains to be seen how Pochettino can bring all of these players together and uh, make something meaningful of it. Okay, you know what? Enough about PSG. I don't care about the French League. What I do want to talk about, however, is what we've got coming up this weekend. Chelsea are playing Liverpool at Anfield. The earliest memory I have of a Liverpool versus Chelsea game is from 2007. You might remember it. I definitely do. It was Torres' home debut. Oh, He yeah. scored his first goal for the club. Brilliantly taken goal. Rounded Tal Benhaim. Slotted it past Perecek. It was fantastic. He celebrated by running down the touchline. And it was the start of an incredible career for Liverpool, at least. And Mourinho left Chelsea a month or two after that game for the first time. I've seen these two teams play each other in so many competitions. It's ridiculous. This might be the most contested game for Liverpool over the past couple of decades. There was a stretch from 2004 to 2009 where the Champions League just didn't feel the same without a Chelsea-Liverpool game. I just feel that rivalries are usually dictated by the decades of history you have between the two clubs, or at least the geography, right? It's sort of this new age rivalry. It only started after the 2000s, where we've really met so frequently that we've become rivals. After United and Everton, the games against Chelsea are the ones that I look forward to a lot. We've been treated to some really historic games, I think more so than Manchester City, which I feel is something that has picked up in the past two or three seasons. It's Chelsea who I feel are a bigger threat. I think to some extent, the two clubs we've supported have come into power and really found their own the last two decades. And that's just coincided with us watching a lot of football as well. So I feel that that, that does add a bit of bias. But then we've had such charismatic managers, like you said, Benitez versus Mourinho, and then the whole Lampard versus Gerrard. We've had big personalities on either team that have driven this rivalry beyond just the scoreline or the stadium you're playing at or Anfield or the noise or whatever. For me, I think my first memory goes back a little bit earlier to 2003, where we weren't the Chelsea you know now. We were Claudio Ranieri's Chelsea without the finance and the money that we have now. Under Claudio Ranieri, we famously pipped Liverpool on the final day of the season to the last Champions League place. It was a straight matchup. Chelsea-Liverpool, the winner would go through and claim that fourth place. Now, we started off by going 1-0 down and then eventually we ended up winning 2-1, I think. But 
that's not the real significance for me, the whole Champions League place. It was the fact that we made the Champions League and what followed. Now, if we hadn't made that fourth spot in the 2003 season, we would have to have sold half of our squad. And seeing that, a certain Roman Abramovich would have never ended up possibly buying the club. And the rest now, having bought the club for 21 years, is history. So I think that game, if you had to go back to one game that changed the course of Chelsea Football Club's history, it probably would be that, at least for my generation. But then there's also, you'll remember, more bitterly contested games. So I can think of another game that was very pivotal to this rivalry. And it might not have changed the course of Chelsea's future, but it certainly had an impact on Liverpool's future and Benitez's future. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Is it the League Cup game in Cardiff? No. You want to try again? The ghost goal? I don't know. Yes. Champions League semi-final? Yes. 2004-2005 season. Champions League semi-final. Luis Garcia game. ghost goal. 1-0. Liverpool go on to the final. Play a historic final at Istanbul against Milan. And the rest is history. Oh, how I'd like to forget that game. So you're going to take the Mourinho angle there, where of you insist that the goal didn't happen. What do you think? Of course. Of course it didn't happen. What goal? Except it did happen, though. What goal? But that, that was a massive pivotal point, I agree. Those games really shows you a rivalry that exists between these two clubs, and that has just gotten greater and greater. And one of the other things I was thinking was, th there have been so many players who've played for both clubs, right? So you've had your low-profile signings like Yossi Benayoun and Raul Mireles and Daniel Sturridge even, who went the other way from Chelsea to Liverpool. But then you've also had high-profile ones like Fernando Torres, who left at probably a declining phase in his Liverpool career and then declined even further at Chelsea. And maybe like the most famous player now who's played for both clubs is Mo Salah. Indirectly, of course, he didn't move from Chelsea to Liverpool, but then Chelsea infamously lost him on a cheap and then didn't realise his potential. And then now he's just burning it up in the Premier League. So I think the rivalry goes far beyond and it has so many facets to it that it just makes it monumental, I feel. So here's the thing. I've, I've got a couple of questions for you. I just wanted to test your knowledge on the Chelsea-Liverpool rivalry. And since you've mentioned players that have played for both clubs, can you name, let's say, five other players who've played for both clubs? I have no fucking clue. Oh, come on. Just think about it. It's really not that hard. I can give you a couple of clues if that helps. Yeah, go ahead, because I'm struggling here. So you said Merelish, you said Ben Ayun, you said Salah as well, you said Fernando Torres, you said Daniel Sturridge. All these players did play for both teams, that is true. The remaining ones that I'm looking for, one played as a right back. Glenn Johnson. Correct. The other one played as a winger. He was on loan from Chelsea to Liverpool. If I'm not mistaken, he played a prominent role in the team under Conte as well, although he played more as a wing-back. Oh, of course, the forgotten man, Victor Moses. Correct. The third one, Gerard famously referred to him as being the English Messi. He shares his last name with one of Chelsea's best ever left-backs. Ashley Cole. Joe Cole? Yep. What? Yep. Joe Cole yep. played for Liverpool? He did. How did I yep. miss this? 
He did. He played, I think, under Roy Hodgson. His first game for Liverpool was against Arsenal at home where he got sent off and it was an absolute shit show of a Liverpool career for Joe Cole. Wow, Chelsea fans are going to shoot me down for this. How do I not remember Joe Cole playing for Liverpool? There are a couple more. Uh, There are three more, right? One of them played for Chelsea, Liverpool, Barcelona. And when Benitez was manager of Chelsea, he was Benitez's assistant manager. I don't really look far down the bench past the manager, so this is going to be a hard one. Did you say Chelsea, Liverpool and Barcelona? Yes. The only person I can think who played for Chelsea and Barcelona was Giuliano Belletti, but I... He didn't play for Liverpool. Yeah, no idea. Bolo Zenden? Who? You don't remember him? No. No? Oh, oh my man. God. He, he, was, he used to play for Liverpool. He was a wingo. He was there in Liverpool's, I want to say, the... 2006-2007 Champions League run. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is news to me. Well, you learn something every day. Okay, so the final one. All right, the final one. I don't know if you've done four or five, but the final one that I have in mind, which I feel you should be able to get, is a player who played for Chelsea, Liverpool, and I think also played for Arsenal. He's French. Ryan Babel? Ryan Babel didn't play for Chelsea. He's also wow. not French. He's Dutch. Well, at this point, I don't know my own Chelsea player, so I'm just guessing from Liverpool, really. If you play for Liverpool, I'll guess it. So, he played for Liverpool because he was on loan at Liverpool for a year. Striker. Do you say French? French. French striker played for Chelsea, Liverpool and Arsenal. I think he was a part of your Champions League winning team as well. I am just blanking out with this. Oh, come on. Nicholas Anelka. Oh, wow. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, Nicolas Anka. Yes. Yeah. That is true. If you'll let me, I've got a second question for you, which has connections to Chelsea and Liverpool. You interested? Might as well. I'm failing miserably anyway. Okay. Rafa Benitez, famous Liverpool manager, was the interim manager of Chelsea. He won you guys the Europa League. That season, what league position did Chelsea finish in? I think we finished seventh. No. Sixth or seventh. No, you guys did much better than you think you did. Fourth? Third. Oh, wow. That That's one of the rare occasions we won a European trophy finishing in the top four. Because we yeah. always end up screwing and you guys, up the Premier League season and then winning a European trophy. Yeah, and you guys gave Benitez a lot of shit that season, but... You won the Europa League and you finished third. Champions League was secured. Hey, we side with Mourinho. In Mourinho, we trust. So we'll always give Benitez shit. But then I'll give him that. He did He did come in. He did a good job. Won us a trophy quite quick. So yeah, I'll give him that. It's crazy when you think about it, how intertwined Mourinho and Benitez's managerial careers were in the early 2000s. Because I'm not sure if you know this. But at the start of the 2004-2005 season, Chelsea were looking for a new manager. Liverpool were looking for a new manager. Mourinho was actually linked with Liverpool before he joined Abramovich at Chelsea. He had just won the Champions League. The owners of Liverpool at the time were interested in bringing Mourinho on board. I don't really know what was the deciding factor for him between Chelsea and Liverpool, but he ended up at Chelsea, as we all know. And Liverpool turned their attention to Benitez, who at the time was making waves in Spain. He was managing Valencia. He had won the Spanish league, beating Barcelona and Real Madrid. The only manager in quite a while to have actually done that. 
he came over to Liverpool 2004-2005 season ended fifth I think or finished by winning the Champions League and these two managers not just in the Premier League even in the Italian League even in the Spanish League they've had a lot of really good clashes and they really hated each other they really really hated each other Mourinho has made some really unsavory comments about Benitez Benitez has responded in kind a lot of places Benitez has effectively replaced Mourinho it happened at Inter Milan it happened at Real Madrid they've had some really really good rivalries one of the most famous games Chelsea and Liverpool played was the 2009 Champions League semi-final do you remember oh, that oh god yes 4-4 Second leg, 4-4 at Stamford Bridge. Eight brilliant goals. I'm I'm glad you brought this up because even though we lost, well we didn't lose this game, it was a draw. We did lose on aggregate. In spite of that, this from recent memory is one of my favorite Chelsea versus Liverpool games. At that point we had gotten so accustomed to watching these two play in the Champions League, a lot of drama over both legs. I still remember parts of the game pretty well. The two moments from the game that really stand out to me were the two free kicks. One by Fabio Aurelio. He was caught pretty Petr far Cech out from goal. Yeah. He got better check napping and I, I no one was prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for it when I saw it and I couldn't believe what I was watching live. And he was probably the best goalkeeper in the league at that point and then yeah. to catch him out that way was brilliant. Yeah. The second goal that I remember was Alex's free kick. It was another defender scoring a free kick. He just hammered that ball into the goal. It was an absolute rocket rena, no chance of saving it. He did not see that coming. That was a fantastic free kick. I remember I was watching this game live and it was such a topsy-turvy game just swinging one way to the other like a pendulum. It was one of the greatest games I've ever watched. That will definitely stay in my mind for ages. But that was a time when English teams were really dominating in the Champions League. It was very common to see at least two English teams right up in the semi-finals. And I think this game more so than any other game that I can think of really personified the rivalry that these two clubs have had in the 2000s. It was a very attacking game, a high-scoring game, a lot of drama, a lot of excitement. The the only game I can think of that was really hostile even before it started was that game on a certain afternoon in 2014 with oh, Brendan Rodgers on the touchline. Oh god. I mean, I have to bring this up. It is literally in my top 3 best Liverpool Chelsea fixtures and not for the quality of the game, not for the result even though Chelsea won 2-0 at Anfield, but just for the stuff that happened in the game. I mean, I was wondering when you were going to try and slip that in. Oh, there we go. There are the puns. Here we go. So I know you're up for it at least. According to me, that was an amazing game. Unfortunate for Gerard, but things like that happen. It was comical. It's become a viral meme. We all love it. We won, but we won with a second string lineup because Mourinho was preparing the team to play a Champions League semi-final and he basically put out a second string lineup to face Liverpool. more to mock and in defiance i guess but then somehow comically we ended up winning that game what do you remember from it i remember your goalkeeper laying down on the floor for much longer than he was on his feet for the duration of the game i remember a lot of passing between the chelsea defense i remember a lot of time wasting but yeah those those are my memories since you asked i mean i can see there are no sour grapes at all 
I'm going to think big picture here. Gerard had a great career. I think that was probably the only blemish. I, for the player that he was and the player that even Chelsea wanted at one point, I really thought he should have won a Premier League title and that was probably your best chance at it. Rogers doesn't get appreciated enough, I feel, for the work he did at Liverpool, which he is now showing at Leicester. So I think that, that ranks as one of the greatest games for all the wrong reasons, I think, for me. There's just one last game that I want to discuss. And this was from last year, 2020. Chelsea visiting Liverpool when the league yeah. restarted after the COVID shutdown. Now, this one might be cheating a bit because I remember this game more for what happened after it rather than the game itself. The game was exciting. There's no doubt about that. Chelsea showed up hoping to crash Liverpool's title party. And they almost did when Pulisic came on and scored two goals. But for me, I remember that game because that's when I got to see Liverpool lift their first ever Premier League title. They had the title celebrations after that game. Yeah, it was a brilliant end-to-end game. Pulisic made a real fight out of it at the end and we almost equalized to make it 4-4. I I remember just jumping off my chair when we'd almost scored at one end and then you guys take it to the other end and smash in the fifth. I think it was Oxlade-Chamberlain or somebody who smashed in the fifth and it was game over. Credit where credit is due. You guys were champions already and you deserved to win that game. So I'm going to take a shot now. I'm going to take my shot at redemption and ask you a few questions. You up for it? Sure. Let's see what you've got. Well, it's not a very high bar to beat considering I got most of mine wrong. So question number one, we're going to be very topical, very current to start off with. You have arguably the greatest center back in the world at the moment, Virgil van Dijk. How many career titles, league titles, has he won? So I know that van Dijk was at Celtic. Celtic usually win their titles. And I think he was at Celtic for just one season before he moved to Southampton. So I'm going to go ahead and say that Celtic won that. He definitely didn't win a league title at Southampton. He did win one at Liverpool. So that's two league titles there. Now, before he moved to Celtic, I don't think he was with Ajax or PSV or any one of those title-winning clubs. Maybe he didn't win anything in the Netherlands. I'm going to say he's got two league titles. So he wasn't at Ajax, yeah, he was at Groningen. Didn't win a league title in the Netherlands. But I would probably go a bit higher. I, I guess he was at Celtic for two seasons then. Maybe he won two titles at Celtic. Total of three titles. Okay, perfect. Second question. Who was Jurgen Klopp's first signing as Liverpool manager? Ah, okay. Interesting. Come on. So Klopp came in October 2015, which means his first transfer window would have been in January. Marco Gruhic. Oh, wow. That is impressive. Obviously, I didn't know that, but I, I didn't think you'd get that. So, yeah, awesome. That is a brilliant answer. I've got one question for you, which I think might be difficult. Go on. Can you name all the people to have managed Chelsea after Mourinho's first sacking in 2007 <laughs> in the order of their appointment? I just don't want the people. I want the order. Oh, for fuck's sake. This is like naming a whole team. So after Mourinho's first reign in charge, right? So that's 2004 to 2007. 2007, yes. So obviously, when someone gets sacked, there's only one man you call. So that's Goose Hiddink. No, oh, right? for fuck's sake. No, that's wrong. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, let me go again. The second interim manager you call, Avram Grant. He took us to the Champions League final. So that's, that's number one. After Avram Grant, 2008... 
2009 was, I would think, Felipe Scolari. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Scolari replaced Grant. He was there for about, uh, I guess, less than a season. And then after that was Carlo Ancelotti. There was someone between Scolari and Ancelotti. Oh, the interim man. So I would say goose hitting. Correct. Ancelotti left in 2011, replaced by Andre Villas-Boas. Yes. AVB got sacked midway through the winning Champions League campaign. He got replaced by Roberto Di Matteo, took us to Champions League glory. So he was an interim manager. Then he got sacked in 2013. Oh, my God. 2013, we were linked with, I would say, Goose hitting... Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. 2013 was Jose Mourinho's comeback. How could I forget that? No, no, no. no. You're missing okay, one so, manager. So there, so there was goose hitting in between again, was it? No. So I said Roberto Di Matteo, right? So who was after him? Di Matteo was replaced by a man we've already spoken about. And we mentioned how much he was abused and insulted by Chelsea supporters. Ah, okay. Rafa Benitez. Correct. So he was there for a period of eight, nine months, then replaced by Jose Mourinho for his second period at Chelsea. Finally ended up acrimoniously in 10th place in 2015. And that's when Goose Hitting took over again to again, finish the right. season off. Yeah, he brought us to a respectable position of 10th in the league. Then we hired Antonio Conte to take over, won the league again in his first season in charge. Conte left and who took over in 2018 I feel I'm missing someone in between Conte and Lampard and then obviously Lampard and then Tuchel I cannot believe look I I, I know how much you have cribbed about Chelsea's managers in the past I cannot believe that you've forgotten about this man ah yeah well Maurizio Sarri yes that's it that's that's the that was a tough one back in the Premier League Having finally rebooted all of their defence, what do you think about Liverpool's form in game week one and two? Are they ready to mount that title challenge again? I think so, yes. In week one, I have to admit I was a bit nervous about facing Norwich. The season that we won the league, we started out against Norwich at Anfield. We won that game 4-0. This time around, I was a bit nervous. Liverpool were playing with their first choice defence for the first time in many, many months. Van Dijk and Mate both were injured for significant portions of last season and they were coming in for a good competitive game after a long time. I felt they did really well. Van Dijk looked a bit off pace. He was caught out in a couple of positions, but nothing damaging that time won't fix. I think he just needs a bit more match fitness. He's still mentally sharp. He still reads the game pretty well, so that's definitely good. And it was good to see our attack doing well as well. The first 20 minutes, I was a bit nervous. And I feel like Liverpool were letting Norwich get into the game quite a bit. But after that first goal from Jota, and there was a bit of luck involved in that goal. After that, it was all Liverpool and the result really wasn't in doubt. Do you think Jota has done enough to replace Firmino and cement that spot as the central striker? I feel like as far as this season is concerned, it's a bit too early to say. He did start the second game this past weekend against Burnley as well, and he did well there too. But I don't know if he's done enough. I really can't tell you if he's the one who's going to start or if Firmino's going to come back in for the Chelsea game. 
the team as a whole, I think they've settled into a groove. They're not as explosive as they used to be a few seasons ago. I don't think this is the Liverpool that'll try to score three or four goals each game. They have it in them. I just think Klopp's tactics have cooled down a bit to help his players manage their fitness levels during the game a bit better. They all did a really good job. I don't think the result was in doubt. Everything went according to plan. There were a couple of scares from Burnley, but Allison's back to his best. He kept everything out. And I think it won't be that easy for Chelsea this weekend when they face Liverpool, which I think is just going to be a really interesting test because we'll have Lukaku coming in against Van Dijk. Two extremely strong, dominant figures on the pitch. I think it's going to be a massive battle. Definitely. Physical, intelligent, agile. It's, it's going to be fun watching these two go against each other this week. Speaking of Lukaku, he absolutely bullied Arsenal's defence in their game. It, it was just a joy to watch him play. I expected nothing less. I think even though we were playing at the Emirates, I knew there was going to be some sort of headline act on the Lukaku front and he delivered. 2-0, it could have been 4 or 5. People tend to focus on the fact that Lukaku was a great focal point up front and everything was going through him. But I feel Tuchel got his tactics spot on. While the Arsenal defence were focusing on Lukaku and the two runners on either side of him, Havertz and Mount, I think our wing-backs turned out to be the two spare men. So Alonso and Reese James were marauding down the flanks and they really turned out to be the men that were pivotally involved in each attack. And I think that's where Arsenal got caught out. I watched the game and I was a bit disappointed that we couldn't convert a few other chances. But I think it bodes really well for next week's game against Liverpool. It's going to be a great battle. I think for Chelsea, it was more of a matter of preserving energy and maintaining fitness levels because I think they really cooled off once they scored the second goal against Arsenal. I don't think they saw any point in attacking further. That was good game management from Tuchel there. One thing that really impresses me about Chelsea under Tuchel, and I don't know if this was a similar formation that they used under Lampard, but I'm a fan of the 3-5-2 formation he puts up, or 3-4-2-1 that he uses. I think that helps the Chelsea players utilize the pitch really well without overexerting themselves, and I don't really think Arsenal had an answer to that. From a Chelsea point of view, I don't think Liverpool are going to waste chances like Arsenal did. They're not going to be as rusty. They're not going to have one-man attack as Arsenal did in Emil Smith-Rowe because no one else on the pitch was really contributing anything. But I feel this Chelsea team has the hunger to challenge the very best. What do you think the final score will be? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Chelsea have recently strengthened in the window, so it's going to be a pretty competitive game. Keep in mind that this is going to be at Anfield. A packed Anfield. Well, yeah, I definitely have to take that into account. My heart says Chelsea 1-0. We will somehow nick it, even with all your Anfield noise. But my head says 1-1, and the points are shared. I'm going to say 2-1 to Liverpool. I expect the crowd to play a major role. I think Chelsea and Tuchel himself will not be used to that because of the pandemic. I feel the crowd will be enough to push them over the line. We've been talking about Chelsea and Liverpool for quite a while, and I want to move on to other exciting topics. We've got Arsenal and Manchester City coming up, and I don't know about you, but I really can't wait to talk about how bad Arsenal will probably be. I know you said they'd finish like 7th or 8th. At this point, for Arsenal's sake, I really hope that comes true, because the way they're playing, that's going to be a huge challenge for them. 
They had a couple of good attempts, but they just didn't do enough. It's like you said, no one on the pitch was really contributing for them. And that's a huge problem. Even during the game, Arteta was on the touchline screaming at everything and everybody about how they should do it. And Tuchel was just sitting in his seat, just chilling the fuck out. You know, it. I think it shows the difference between the two managers because one just came in with the game plan, sat down and didn't worry about anything for majority of the game. And the other one was trying to manage everything that he could from the touchline and they've spent a lot of money this season and I don't think those signings are going to make the team better. I don't know what signings they can make to make the team better but this is a club that definitely has a huge uphill battle ahead of it. It just doesn't get any better now because Arsenal have an even bigger mountain to climb next week when they play Man City. Now personally I feel Man City came from behind to win the title last season I think if they slip up this season, where their form hasn't been perfect either, they might not be able to regain that ground because of the other teams strengthening around them. But spare a thought for Arsenal, how are they going to battle even a sub-strength Manchester City, who who might be full strength now with Kevin De Bruyne coming back? I really think that Arsenal could have done with a better set of fixtures to open the season with. In one way, I guess it's good that they're getting these big games out of the way. I don't think it would have made a difference if they played Chelsea and Manchester City now or if they played Chelsea and Manchester City in November or December. I think the result would have been the same. But this won't do Arsenal's confidence any good. I would be surprised if they won against City. At the same time, it's weird, you know, if Arsenal do manage to win against City, I feel like that would be the most Arsenal thing to do. You go out, lose to Brentford, you lose to Chelsea, and then you have one game where you beat someone whom you don't expect to beat and then everyone's happy. If they lose, on the other hand, I don't know what happens to Arteta. I don't know if this is the season where they'll look at him and go, okay, you've had two full seasons, we've given you a good transfer window. If you don't perform, you're out. But at the same time, they've backed him pretty well during the transfer window. So that maybe points to the board giving him more time. And I just don't see where Arsenal are headed right now. In either case, I think we've got some tasty talking points for next week, whichever team loses. Yeah, that's true. So while Arsenal are clearly the worst team in London right now, one team that I want to talk about that you might not be so keen to talk about are Spurs. They've won both of their games so far. They haven't won them by a huge margin. It didn't really even look like they were that in control for majority of those games, but they've managed to sneak past and finish both games. The first one was significant because it was against Manchester City. The second one against Wolves, nothing mightily impressive about both those games, but that's six points in the bag. Yes, they've won narrowly in both games, but they've got six points and all this without Harry Kane. Harry Kane came on for the last 20 minutes of the game, but didn't really do much. So they haven't really relied on their main talisman and still won both games. I feel it's a good sign. I feel Nuno can transform them slowly into a team that grinds out wins. Even if it is just 1-0, it's still getting points on the board. So definitely doing a lot better than Arsenal, I'd say. So while Spurs have surprised me in the first two games, not with the way they play, but at least with their results, one team that did disappoint was Leicester. I know they won their first game pretty comfortably. Jamie Wardy came up with another iconic celebration. The second game, they just dropped the ball and West Ham ran riot throughout the game. The result sort of focuses on Leicester losing, but I feel that West Ham here blitz the win. They are really my dark horse for this season. Moyes has them purring like a well-oiled machine. 
I think they're working really well from back to front. They've made some great signings. They've got Antonio up front, who apparently broke the record for the most goals by a West Ham player. So that was great. He's going to keep on going. They have Declan Rice in midfield, who really controls the game. They've got Ben Rama, who's the master playmaker slash creator, who managed to, I believe, get a goal and an assist. So it's going really great. And I feel the red card dampened Leicester a little bit with Iose Perez getting sent off. But it was 1-1 at the time. West Ham still had to close out the game and they really, really smashed them after that point. I wasn't expecting 4-1, but yeah, kudos to West Ham. Do you feel comfortable saying that West Ham would finish above Arsenal this season? With the way they're going, definitely. I think that says more about Arsenal than it does about West Ham, to be honest. You're right, you're right. Speaking of disappointments... I don't think we can leave out Manchester United and the weekend they've had. They drew the game against Southampton. I know a lot of United fans have been complaining about the tackle on Bruno Fernandes, which led to Southampton's goal. I guess part of me is surprised that they came crashing down to earth so quickly because game week one, they were massively dominant. Game week two, I saw good chances coming from them. Greenwood had a couple of good attempts, one header from open space that he really should have done better, but it ended up above the bar. United lacked that clinical touch. I don't know if they're going to try to rectify that in whatever's left of the transfer market. I know they've got Rashford coming back. Maybe that'll make a difference. It feels like United supporters would be very disappointed with the result this weekend. I can't imagine what it's like to support United right now. They are so all over the place. You expect them to come out flying, which they did in game week one. Everyone was happy and then they go back to this substandard performance. I would hate going from week to week, up and down, and then ending up in second place eventually. So I would have tipped them to challenge for the title this season, but it might still be too early. I think we're we're pretty early on with our predictions, but yeah, I don't see enough from United to win the title for sure. So on that note, we have a lot to look forward to over the upcoming game week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm sure we have a lot to talk about in the next episode. So until next time.